Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. We are continuing our series called Run It Back as we take a second look at some of our favorite sermons from the past five years. This week we are in Luke chapter 7 as Jesus is invited to a dinner at the house of a Pharisee which gets interrupted by a prostitute. We are challenged from this passage to rethink how we treat those who don't fit into our religious categories and to offer compassion and dignity to everyone in our presence. Follow along and we hope you enjoy this message. All right, everyone, welcome yet again to uh, Fellowship Greenville students. We are so glad you are here tonight on this warm summer evening that we are having. This heat wave has been lingering, but it looks like the temperatures are going back down to normal, which is, I don't know how you feel about it, but to me it's a good thing. I don't like the heat, so I'm glad. I want to welcome you tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want to let you know right off the bat, this is a place that we feel and believe that uh, you are loved and that you belong, no matter where you're at in life, no matter the baggage you brought through the doors tonight, no matter the questions you have, no matter the doubts you have, no matter where you're at on the spectrum of belief, we believe that you are loved and you belong. You'll find out really quickly we are all about Jesus here. We think he is the source of hope and life in this world, and uh, we hope and pray you come to discover that as well. We have been in a series this summer called Run It Back, where we, have, we are going back over the past five years or so of sermons and kind of cherry-picking some of the favorites over those five years. We're only doing this over the summer, so it's a limited edition series, and we're continuing that uh, series tonight. I have in my pocket here, does anyone, some of you guys may know, does anyone know what this is right here? It's not a vape. <laughs> is it a jewel, man? No. Does anyone know what this is? Come on. Some, some hunters in the room. Represent. It's not a duck call. I know it looks like a duck call, but it is a call of some sort. Easy mistake. Not a duck call, but a, not a turkey call. It's a, it's a deer, and specifically a female deer. A doe call. That doe. All right. This is a doe call. If you've never heard a female deer, it's called a bleat. If you've never heard a doe bleat, it may not sound like what you think it sounds, but this is a doe call. We are going to bleat tonight together. You guys ready? Is that what you thought a female deer would sound like? No. Bambi does not sound very nice, right? But this is a doe call, and, and this call is letting all those like juiced up bucks out there know like, yo, dude, I'm here and I'm looking and I'm ready. Okay. That's what the doe is saying. Now, if you're a hunter, then you know, like you might be asking Matt, why would you need a doe call? Why would you need any animal call? First of all, but if you're a hunter, you know, during specific seasons and specific times of those seasons, different calls come into play. And there are certain times in the deer season known as the rut, where the bucks are like looking for females. They, they are about it, about it, okay? And so they're just like prancing around looking all day for females, and the females are letting the bucks know, I'm here, and I'm looking for you too, boo. And so they let out that very alluring bleat. You guys want to hear it again? <laughs> I know, it's sexy. And if you're a male buck... You're like, you know, yo, my little boo thing, my little doe thing, where you at in the woods? Let's meet up. This is a bleat. Now, what's amazing about this to me is that there are people who have studied 
that particular animal, a deer's throat and esophagus and vocal cords, they have studied it to the point where they have replicated the noise that it makes in a little tool right here. In fact, they've done this with many, many animals. And I don't know how that lands on you, but that's kind of a cool thing to me. It's like we can study something's voice or its throat enough to have a call that replicates how that animal sounds. In fact, they've done this with human beings. Did you know that? Two years ago, scientists discovered a mummy that had been so well-preserved. It was a 3,000-year-old mummy, but it had been so well-preserved that they were able to study its esophagus, its throat. And with modern technology, 3D printing, and some other things, they were able to reproduce the noise of this mummy, what his voice they think would have sounded like. It can only produce like one word uh, syllables though, so it's kind of limited. And so it's really just kind of a grunt noise. And you can find this video online, but when they play it, it's just like, like, it's not that impressive to hear, but what's impressive is the technology. Like there are people who have studied the esophagus, the throat, the things of this, whether it's an animal or a 3,000-year-old mummy or whatever, they, they have spent enough time studying it that they can actually reproduce the voice of that thing. It's pretty amazing. And I think, I was thinking about this this week, I think that for those of us who follow Jesus, we kind of make the same claim. That we have spent enough time with God, we have spent enough, enough time in God's word, we have studied the things of God, we have a relationship with God, that we've spent enough time studying that we can actually know maybe what God's voice would sound like. What is God saying to this thing? What is God saying to that? What would the voice of God have to say here? We've spent enough time studying that we can actually maybe begin to understand what God's voice sounds like. But here's the problem, all right? Are you ready? You guys heard the bleat, right? Yes, you heard it? All right, let me just give it one more time just in case you forgot what it sounds like. This is that little doe thing off in the woods. (laughs) Here we go. Okay, now the buck's like, yo, dude. Okay, now watch. Watch what happens, though, if I flip this upside down and I don't do it in the the right side. Now watch. (laughs) All of a sudden, we went from doe thing to no thing. You know what I mean? Like, that bug is out. Like, nope, no thank you. Because, because we approached it in the wrong direction. And I think, as Christians, we have that same possibility. We may have spent time with God and maybe can even understand what God would say to, spend, to certain things or what God's word would say or what God's voice would say. But here's the problem. Sometimes, as Christians, as those who follow Jesus, we approach it from all the wrong angles. And we claim to be experts in the voice of God or we claim to be experts in what God might say to something or we claim that we would understand what it would sound like or what, what to speak to this thing, this scenario, this problem in culture, this relationship, this person, but if we're not approaching it in the right way, it sounds miserable. And instead of bringing things in, it actually pushes them away. And one of the things, especially over the past few years, that I just keep pondering on and keep meditating on and keep coming back to and and keep finding myself burdened by is how often people in the name of Jesus treat other people 
in negative ways, in, in sinful ways, in wicked ways, ways that completely misrepresent God's character and God's voice and God's heart and God's compassion. Did you know that it is possible to say something that is true, but how you say it is unloving? And sometimes those who follow Jesus in the name of truth can be the most unloving voices to experience on the planet. And brothers and sisters in the room, this cannot be so. It cannot be of us. Few uh, or last year, a few months ago, almost a year ago, I was at a dinner uh, in, at one of my neighbors' house, and as I was eating, there were some new neighbors in the in the neighborhood, and they had come over for the dinner. And I was getting to know the wife and the husband, and they've got a little girl, and I was, you know, learning all their names and the small talk stuff, which you guys know I'm so great at. And we were doing all that, and eventually he asked me what I did, which is kind of like the common question, right? Like, oh, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, I mean, he literally like took a step back. He's like, no. He's like, yeah, I am. He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, I am. And he's like, I don't, like, so tell me, like, tell me, like, what is that? Like, he knew what it was. But like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? He was surprised to hear what I did because I was actually kind to him when I met him. I was not presumptuous. Like he had already, uh, that, that entire night, he'd been cursing around me or whatever, and I didn't come in with this like super Christian card of like, hey, you don't know Jesus, but you shouldn't curse anyway. Like I just, you know, like I just let him be him, and I'm meeting him where he's at, and I'm genuinely interested in his story and his family and learning their names and, and treating them with kindness and dignity and value, and when he learned I was a pastor, he was so thrown off because every experience he's had in life up to this point with Christians or those, those in the church has led him to believe that they are some of the most judgmental, condescending, unkind people you could possibly encounter. And all of a sudden, there's this new category getting introduced in his head. Here's a pastor who's kind and listens, and I don't feel judged by him, and this is odd. Like, he, he just didn't have a category for it. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not, but if I were to ask for a show of hands of, hey, how many of you in the room have ever had a negative experience with someone who claims to follow Jesus, and I asked you to raise your hand, I would imagine most hands would go up in the room. Now, that's a little unfair because you've probably had a negative experience with almost everybody in life, no matter the category. But if, if I were to specify and say, how many of you have had a negative experience with someone who followed Jesus, on the grounds of them trying to approach you with truth or them trying to approach you with correction or, or whatever it is in the name of Jesus, that's a little more specific, I still would imagine most hands would go up in the room. One of the most heartbreaking conversations I ever had with a guy, his name is William. I met him a number of years ago in Columbia, South Carolina. We were sitting outside and... Um, he shared the story when he was in Sunday school. His Sunday school teacher told him he would never amount to anything, and he walked away from God uh, because he was so hurt by that. And I had the opportunity to just come alongside of him and say, hey, man, William, let me just, I, I can't apologize on behalf of your Sunday school teacher because they need to own that, but let me just apologize in the name of Jesus and let you know, I don't know how you were treated other than that, but I can tell you that was wrong. I'm sorry that in the church you heard something as negative as that and it pushed you away from God for life. He's like a full-grown man. Most people have had negative experiences 
with those who claim to know Jesus and love Jesus. But instead of speaking in ways of love and truth, we, we tend to speak in ways of judgment, graceless, lack of compassion, fill in the blank. And so people begin to define Jesus according to Christians, and they want nothing to do with them, right? It's most often kind of summed up like this. This is what I hear all the time. It's, it's something like this. We like Christ, like when we read the Bible... When we, when we study Jesus, when we read the Bible, when we read what he says, when we read what he did, we like Christ, but we don't like Christians. That's what I hear most often as I talk to people about faith. Has anyone ever heard anything similar to that before? Show of hands. I am doing a show of hands on this one. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. We like Christ. We read the Bible and we see that he seems to show love and compassion and patience and dignity and value and and actually pursues people on the fringe and the marginalized and the hurting and the broken. Seems like Jesus is kind of a good guy. We like Christ. We don't like Christians. And if I ever get into the whys of that, why? Like what experience has pushed you away from faith because of Christians? It's typically how they were treated or how they were made to feel or something like that. So hear me. Tonight's message is specifically addressing those of us in the room who claim to believe in Jesus and is specifically challenging us to align ourselves with Jesus and grab for a better understanding of how did Jesus treat people and could we actually do that instead of how we typically treat people. And for those of you in the room who may not believe in Jesus, I want you to hear this message too because I want you to know what to expect from those who claim they do. And I want you to know if you've had a bad experience in life, a sour experience, an unkind or unloving experience with those who claim Jesus, I am sorry. We're not all like that. Jesus certainly wasn't like that. So I want to I dive into it tonight. A couple of uh, prefaces. I'm not talking, ab- what I'm not talking about tonight is like, hey, your feelings got hurt because someone disagreed with you. There's ways to disagree and still have compassion and love. And sometimes we get so triggered because someone didn't agree didn't agree with us. I've literally heard before, if you don't agree with me on everything, you don't love me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like my wife and I have disagreements. Disagreements are a part of life. You can still have love and respect and honor and good conversations in the midst of disagreements. So I'm not just talking about disagreements. It's okay to disagree with people, but how you disagree matters. You guys hear me? So for the sake of tonight, I'm just going to use the word religion when we start to get into our points. I'm going to use the word religion because I think there are good versions of Christianity and good versions of religion. But for the sake of tonight, I'm just going to use this idea of religion being this this system that can be easily corrupt and toxic. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be tonight. We are uh, going to be at a dinner party Tonight, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party by a Pharisee, and the New Testament Pharisees were this religious group. They were the leaders of religion and structured worship and God's word. They were the experts. If you were a Pharisee, you belonged to this hyper-exclusive group of men who valued knowledge and expertise. They would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized by the age of 13, I don't just mean the names of the books, I mean word for word, memorized by the age of 13. By the time they were 18, they would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. 
Just to give you some context, these were like religious sponges, God's word absorbed into their heads. And oftentimes it was with good intent they wanted to learn the word of God so they could live by the word of God, but knowledge became pride. The more they knew, the more they felt like they were better than everyone else. And eventually they leveraged their power to belittle others. And the Pharisees kind of became a very corrupt, power-hungry group, which is why they didn't love Jesus, because he disrupted their power and their hold on people. So one of those Pharisees is named Simon, and Simon invites Jesus to a dinner party. I don't think this was because Simon was like, yo, I want to make friends with this dude. I think more, more likely it was to trick or trap Jesus or, or desire to see what Jesus would do in his company. So we're going to pick up Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Let's go ahead and read along. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, like his internal dialogue here, said to himself, if this man really were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. We're going to pause there. So let's paint the picture. What's going on here? Jesus is invited over to a dinner party at this guy's house, Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. Pharisees, uh, the bulk of them did not like Jesus, although some of them were at least curious about him and treated him friendly. But this guy... We don't really know his intentions until later in the passage, but he doesn't seem like, hey, I want to make friends with Jesus, and more so seems like, I want to trap Jesus. Jesus is at the the dinner party. Now, this may seem like a weird scene, like, whoa, they're having dinner. (laughs) I said that very weird. I also bit my lip right there. They're having dinner, and this woman comes into the scene. Where did she come from? Like, this is an odd break in the invitation. Like, this dinner party is interrupted by this woman. Luke describes her as a woman of the city, as a sinner. This was the title that she had. Let me make it very plain to you. She was a prostitute. She solicited her body as sexual service to men in the city. This was her profession. So if you're a religious leader and you care about your company and you don't want to be associated with sinful people, this woman did not have an invitation to the dinner. So why was she there? It was common in this culture, if you were hosting a dinner party and you had a prominent guest, like someone, I don't know, like Jesus, it was very common for people upon hearing about this dinner to come over to the house and observe the dinner. That might seem weird to you. The next time you host a dinner at your home and complete strangers walk in and stand there, you'd call the cops. I get it, that's our culture. Their culture is when prominent conversations are happening, especially at dinner parties, People are curious about what's going to be said. It was almost like it was almost like a live like TED talk. It was like, yo, here's some people who know what they're going to talk about, the experts in their field. We want to observe it. So it was common practice to go to these dinner parties and stand on the wall or stand outside if it was happening outside to stand outside of the wall and look in. But certainly you were supposed to stand on the wall and be silent and observe. And that's not what this woman does. 
So it's understandable how she might have walked in knowing Jesus was there because other people were walking in to observe the dinner. What's What's really out of pocket here is her disruption of the whole scene. Jesus is reclining at the table with this prominent religious figure. If anyone around that table was supposed to show love to her and compassion to her and dignity to her, it would have been the person claiming to be the expert on the voice of God. She comes in, she stands behind Jesus, she begins weeping, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair, and kiss his feet and anoint them with her ointment. This alabaster flask of ointment that she had, again, just to give you some cultural context, this would have been an extremely expensive bottle of perfume. And more, uh, more likely than not, it would have been held in a very small clay vessel and worn as a necklace around her neck. And she probably would have put it on one drop at a time every single time she was performing sexual favors to men. Culturally, this is what prostitutes did. This aroma of perfume was extremely expensive, but it was kind of part of the profession. And one drop at a time, she would put it on as she serves men in her profession. It's very expensive. Her entire livelihood, most likely, is wrapped up in this one bottle. She empties the entire bottle on Jesus' feet. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The religious man in the room cannot get over the fact that she's a prostitute. The religious man in the room can't look past her profession. The religious man in the room can't look past her behavior and her actions. He cannot see beyond what she does for a living. And I don't know if you've ever researched prostitution as a profession, but very like hyper percentage rare is it chosen as a profession by women out of desire. It's usually chosen out of necessity. It is the only option on the table left to bring home money for family. It is the only option on the table left to support and provide for themselves. They've literally gone to every other road and just hit dead end, dead end, dead end. And they are left with what? Soliciting themselves to evil and corrupt men. And unfortunately, it still happens today. For about 10 years, I would go down to the Dominican Republic and I'd take students with me. But I remember one year I was down there, I went to um, a village that I had never been to before, and <clears throat> there were so many little girls standing around this village. And so I asked one of the guys, uh, one of the locals in that village who was hosting our group, I asked him, I said, why are there so many little girls? And by little girls, I mean nine nine years old, 10 years old? I said, why are there so many little girls spread out and standing? Like if, if you walked through an alley, there'd be a girl, and you take a left and there'd be another girl. Why are there so many here? And he said, oh, they're prostitutes. I just, I, I could not believe the number in just this one village of teenage girls. The Dominican Republic has the highest ratio in all of the Caribbean for teenage girls being prostitutes. And I, like I knew it existed, but, 
for whatever reason, this village, or maybe we just went at, at the right time, they were everywhere. Nine years old, ten years old. They're, they were there because, as young girls, they got into relationships with boys who promised them life and stability and companionship and love. And then when they got pregnant, those young men became cowards and ran away and left them. And so now those little girls are trying to raise little girls, and the only option on the table for them is to solicit their body. In this story, we don't know the context of why this woman was a prostitute. Most likely, she didn't choose this profession because she wanted it. But the religious man in the room can't see anything but that. This woman's a sinner. She's dirty. She's a woman of the city. And she's using the very tool of her profession, this this perfume. She wears that when she has sex with men. And she's putting that on Jesus? She's putting that on him? If he were a prophet, he would know. This is a filthy woman. He's no prophet. I mean, you can see the level of judgment and separation that this Pharisee has from this woman. And so here's one of the first things that toxic religion does. Religion loves to create categories of better than and less than. Religion loves to create categories of better than and less than. For those who believe that we've studied God, we've walked with God, we have faith in God, we know about God, we understand his voice, and when we get to this place of arrogance and pride and we actually think we've got it all figured out, all of the sudden we begin to create categories of better than and less than. Namely, I'm better than you and you're less than me because I know more about God than you and you know less than me and therefore I'm better. I'm sure at least all of you have had one experience like this in life where someone considers themselves better than others because of how much they know about something. Doesn't even have to be about God, it can be about anything. But they consider themselves better than, superior than others because of how much they know. This Pharisee is looking at this woman's profession, not the context of her life, but her profession and creating categories. If Jesus knew what I knew, he would never let her touch him because she is a sinner. I'm better than her. I would never let her touch me. That's what he's saying. Toxic religion, empowered puffed up by pride of how much we know and understand. Religion creates categories of better than and less than. And we do this all the time. It does not have to be this scenario to apply to us. We do this all the time. If someone has a different theological belief than you about something, immediately, it's like this defensive posture, you're wrong. I've got to prove you wrong. I've got to prove myself right. You're doing it. If someone has a different, I'm almost hesitant to even go here, but I think the gospel speaks to this too. If someone has a different political belief than you do, this thing just rises up. How could you? How could you have voted for them? How, How could you believe in that policy? How could you disagree? I'm right. You're wrong. This is madness. Immediately, because of what we think we know, we dismiss a person's dignity and context and immediately focus on their belief or their decision or their choice, and we, we go at it. We attack. 
we create categories of better than and less than. Someone's past, someone's decisions, someone's circumstances. We create categories of how we're better and how they're not. Friends, that's, that's toxic religion. We've become puffed up in our expertise of knowing of the right thing to believe and the right thing to say. I'm not saying there's no room to defend truth or advocate, advocate for justice or I'm not saying there's not righteous causes in this world that need to be kind of rallied around and fought for, but how we do it matters. And if you dismiss a person's dignity just to prove your point, you're not doing it the right way. Let's continue our passage. Verse 41. I'm sorry, the very end of verse 40. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon said, say it, teacher. Now, what I love about this is the accusation that the Pharisee just made in verse 39, as he sees this woman weeping and crying and letting her hair down, which, by the way, in this culture, if a woman let her hair down, it was very risque, okay? Like, if a, if a woman let her hair down in front of men that weren't her husband, it was literally, literally grounds for divorce. So to let your hair down as a woman in this culture was like, scandalous, right? And this woman has her hair down, wiping the feet of Jesus, crying on his feet, anointing them with her perfume. And the religious man in the room says, if he really knew, he'd never let, if he was a prophet, he'd never let her touch him. I love the irony here because Simon says that to himself. And look at the very end of verse 40, Jesus answered. Well, no one asked him a question. Who's he answering? Not a rhetorical question. Who's he answering? Simon. But Simon is not talking out loud, is he? Like Simon is accusing Jesus, this man's not a prophet. He doesn't know anything. But he's saying that in his head. And Jesus is like, yo, hold up. Can I address that thought real quick? Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. Jesus tells this hypothetical story. A moneylender has two debtors. So there's two people who owe money. One owed 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's worth of wages, and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. So this is kind of like, let's just keep it simple. Imagine $100,000 and imagine $10,000. Who owes more? $100,000, right? But the lender, the money lender, canceled the debt of them both simultaneously. Jesus says, now, which one of them will love him more? Simon, the Pharisee, answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Which I love, by the way. The word see is so powerful. Not just like look at her, but like do you see her? Do you, do you truly see this daughter of God in front of me? Do you see her? Not just her lifestyle, but her. 
He said, do you see this woman in front of me? I entered your home. You gave me no water for my feet. Which was customary, by the way. If you were hosting a dinner party and you wanted to honor your guest, you would wash their feet. Like the highest honor would be to wash your guest's feet. If you weren't trying to honor them to the highest, you would have a servant do it. And at the very least, you would allow them to do it. Jesus is saying, I came to your home. You gave me nothing for my feet. So Simon has intentionally disrespected Jesus. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around this because this is not our culture and custom, but every dinner party, feet washing was mandatory, and Jesus is saying, I came to your home, and you gave me nothing for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Again, customary. In that culture, to kiss someone was a greeting of respect. To kiss their hand meant that you consider them higher honor than yourself, but certainly kiss their cheek. Simon gave Jesus no kiss. It'd be like the equivalent of you invite someone over to your house, they roll up and ring the doorbell, and you go and you open the door and just kind of crack it a little bit and then walk away and kind of expect them to know what to do, like no greeting, no warmth, no like bro hug, like what up dog, like nothing. Jesus is saying, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Again, cultural practice, kind of like, uh, you know, essential oils, like lavender, peppermint, you know how they smell good sometimes? In that culture, you put oil on the head of your guests, this aroma, it it would often be scented with different uh, oils that smell good. You didn't anoint my head with oil, she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. In the story of the moneylenders, Jesus says one owed $100,000, one owed $10,000. If the lender forgives the debt of both, which one do you think will appreciate it more? Which one will love more? The Pharisee says, I guess the one who owed the most. Jesus says, you're right. You're right. I came to your home. You gave me nothing to wash my feet. I came to your home. You gave me no kiss for my face. I came to your home. You gave me no oil for my head. But she has washed my feet with her tears and hair, and she anointed them with perfume, and she, and she, and she. Jesus is trying to help this religious man understand she is reacting to the fact that she knows forgiveness has taken place. So here's the the, the second thing uh, that's pretty characteristic of toxic religion. Religion is blind to its own needs. Now, the woman certainly had a lot of sins to be forgiven. Like, let's not mistake that. And so her response to Jesus is authentic and and on display and shameless, and she's just so overcome with the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. The religious leader, though, he still has sins. It's not like he's perfect. But again, he's created categories of better than, less than, and so he has become blind to the fact that the same grace needed by this woman of the city is the same grace needed by this man of the temple. But he can't see it because he's become blind to his own needs. Let me put it this way. When you don't think you have much to be forgiven for, you are not desperate for Jesus. Jesus. 
You, you heard a few testimonies earlier tonight about our trip to Jackson, Mississippi. Let me just share one more. We partnered with this church in the inner city, very low income area. People coming off the street, people coming from all sorts of different contexts and lifestyles. And some of the men that are serving in this church, they're, they're in a rehabilitation program. And so they're coming out of backgrounds of heavy drug addiction. They're coming out of um, different lifestyles. Uh, one of the guys was wearing uh, his ankle uh, bracelet, his like home arrest bracelet the entire time he was serving with us. Like they've been incarcerated, they're on parole, they're on probation. These dudes are just coming out of rough lives, man. And we were in the church Small group of us got to go Sunday morning. We're in the church. The countdown's going. The music's about to start. And all of a sudden, in the back of the room, this, cl- this clapping just starts. And it starts to swell. And it's all of these dudes. And all of a sudden, they flood out of their seats. And they move to the front. And the worship hits literally like one strum on the guitar. And it's, it's just a dude on an acoustic guitar and a microphone. Like it's not instruments and it's like one dude and the microphone is very over amplified and the speakers are like blaring and he hits one strum and man I'm telling you every single one of those dudes hit their knees and poured themselves on the altar at the front of the room they are weeping their hands are raised you've already heard like one of them only had one leg and he's standing raising his hands crying I saw a, a, a man in a wheelchair who couldn't stand on his own and these dudes came around him and literally put his arms around their shoulders and helped him stand so that he could worship standing before father they are poured out they are prostrate on the ground everyone in that room is praising God do you know why they are responding that way before the music even gets to the chorus because they're desperate for grace They are desperate for God's grace because they know their lives are a wreck. Hear me on this, guys. Comfort is the enemy of desperation. And for all the blessings that we have in this life, and for all the blessings that money brings, money typically creates comfort and we forget that we have needs. We become blind to the fact that we need God's grace. In college, I heard this. The more you understand your sin, like the bigger your sin gets, the more you understand how big of a sinner you actually are, the bigger God's grace appears. If God's grace is this small in your mind, then you only see your sin as this big of a deal. This woman knows what her life has been. She is desperate for God's grace. The religious person, the comfortable person, the person who thinks he's better than, has not treated Jesus with any, any sense of hospitality because he does not think he needs God's grace. Religion is often blind to its own needs. Last couple verses of this passage. And then Jesus looked at the woman and said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, he's not worried about what they're saying. He's not worried about the gossip. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Everyone else in the room is concerned about the authority that Jesus, how can he do that? He can't do, who is this that even forgives sins? They're more concerned with the system of their religion than they are this woman receiving hope and light and grace. Third characteristic of toxic religion. Religion lacks compassion. Religion lacks compassion. It lacks the ability to see the bigger picture. It lacks the ability to see beyond the person. It lacks the ability to see beyond their life context. It's way more focused on their choices than giving them more chances. It's way more focused on the the, the practices of their life rather than the posture of their heart. Religion comes along and looks at a person and sums it up in one minute. Oh, because you're like this, you must be wicked. You must not know. You must be lost. Don't touch me. I'm better than you. And we separate ourselves. Religion lacks compassion. You know what the word compassion literally means? It literally means to come alongside of someone and suffer with them. When you look at a person and their life, if your first instinct is to tell them where they're wrong and how they're wrong, if your first instinct is to prove them wrong with your argument, if your first instinct is to go on attack mode and get angry with them for what they believe or the stance they have or their political affiliation or whatever they just posted on Instagram, if your first instinct is anger, defense, winning an argument over them, proving them wrong, you lack compassion. Because compassion first pauses to see not just the context of the person's decisions, but the context of what led them there. It sees the bigger picture, that this is a child of God. This is a daughter of the king. She probably didn't choose prostitution. She's probably doing this out of necessity. Who knows how many lives she's taking care of or how many mouths she's feeding. Who knows how much shame she feels deep down and how much she hates every single night this new man in her life, how much she hates those moments. Compassion sees the bigger picture and compassion offers care because it sees the dignity, the value of a person. Remember what Jesus said to Simon, do you see her, see this woman? Look at her, not just her, look at her. Look how she treated me. She's responding to grace. She's been forgiven much, so she's loving much. Religion typically lacks compassion, the ability to come alongside of someone and suffer with. You know why? Because we've already formed conclusions in our head about that person. You know why? Because you've created categories of better than and less than, and you're blind to your own needs. We are very quick to see this kind of like in the big picture of like, man, I can't stand those Christians that claim the voice of God, and they're so cruel and so mean, and... And we do all of those same things. Think about the people in this room that you don't talk to because you already have opinions about them formed because of rumors you've heard at school, because of things that you've heard, because of whatever, assumptions you've made. You've already formed categories. So you like compassion. Think about the people in this room who feel so lonely And oftentimes, they don't feel like they belong in here. And oftentimes, they don't feel like anyone talks to them or goes out of the way for them. You might not even notice them. You know why? Because you're blind to your own needs. So often, we claim this expertise of how we know God. And so often, 
We are using the wrong end. And it is coming out as ugly and undesirable and pushing people away. About a dozen times in the New Testament, the word compassion is used, and they're all used to describe Jesus, each and every one of them. They're used to describe Jesus and how he saw people. Jesus saw people as worthy of coming alongside of them and suffering with them in their plight. The whole gospel is that, that God became human. (laughs) Every time the word compassion is used in the New Testament, it's about Jesus and his character. I think it stands to reason that those who claim to know Jesus would also be characterized by the very word that is exclusively used to describe Jesus, which is compassion. That we would come alongside of others and have the ability to see past their decisions, to see past their lifestyle, to see past their political affiliation or past their theological infrastructure or past whatever, and actually see the bigger picture that this is a person whom God loves and they matter, and I can actually get over myself, become aware of my own needs, the fact that I need grace too, and I'm not better than anybody, and I can actually meet them with compassion. It's how the gospel gets displayed. It's how the gospel gets fleshed out. It's how Jesus treated people. Jesus rarely got angry at people, but the people he got angry with were the religious people who thought they had it all figured out and misrepresented God. They were blowing out of the wrong end. And I fear that we are often just as guilty of not loving, of being blind to our own needs, and of creating categories of who's less than us and who are we better than. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, look, I can speak in angelic languages. I can have every gift known to man. But if I don't have love, then none of that matters. It doesn't matter if what you say is true. If you don't have love behind it, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter if what you say is right. If you don't have love behind it, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter if anything comes out of you. If there's not love present with it also, it is not of Jesus. Because Jesus is love. It doesn't mean you can't speak to things and fight for truth and rally the things that matter. But love is the motivator because people matter. When I was young, when I was in grade school, we all wore these bracelets. They were pretty trendy. It said WWJD. I know you guys know what those are. What would Jesus do? And then what's really cool is your generation came along and actually answered it. You guys started making bracelets. He would love first. I've seen like a million of those on you guys. The problem is we don't. We don't love first. We judge first. We don't love first. We assume first. We don't love first. We categorize first. We don't love first. We fight first. And then we find the people who kind of line up with us and then we love them. Let us be men and women of compassion. Let that describe us and characterize us as it did Jesus. Let us never be found guilty of an entitled, puffed up, arrogant version of religion that categorizes and is blind to itself and lacks compassion. Let us love first. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for truth. 
I pray, Jesus, that as we walk with you more and know you more and come to understand your voice and actually become channels of that voice and people begin to understand you and hear you and know you through us, that it would be a message fueled by love and compassion that no matter what we're saying, to whom we're saying, whether we're disagreeing or agreeing or anything, if we're advocating for a cause or if we're just having a simple conversation, that the fuel would be love and the worldview would be compassion. Help us be young men and young women like you, who could look beyond choices and give chances. Jesus, we desperately ask this. Reveal to us our sin. Reveal to us our need for grace. And help us respond with overwhelming love and gratitude. Help us see others with dignity and value. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.